If you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them up to James chapter 4? James chapter 4, we are in the midst of a mini-series couched within a larger series called Faith That Lives. This morning we're going to be in part 5 of learning how to become a peacemaker. Becoming a peacemaker. And we've seen how James has dissected the heart that is embroiled in conflict. Now listen, it's been, I think, four weeks since we've been, three weeks since we've been in this series. So I've got to do a review. So I'm going to review very quickly, but there is a lot of meat in this sermon. I'm going to ask that you might actually do something that some of you never have done before. Take notes, get your Bible out. You have a, an outline in your bulletin. Should be a pencil in the back of that pew in front of you. Uh, there's a lot in here. And if you're serious about becoming a child of God who knows how to work through conflict toward peace. This is what the scriptures gives you. James has opened up. He's done surgery. He has put it on the x-ray table and he's shown us what a heart looks like that's in conflict. It's a heart that is racing after its own desires. This is chapter four of James verse one, verses one and three. This heart, this person who's in conflict because they're racing after their desires has become unfaithful to God. That's verses four and five. So instead of worshiping God, this person is worshiping self, demanding to get what he or she wants. Now, a lot of us might be even cluing out now. You might not really be listening, but this is so important because if we do not get the platform, the foundation of why we need to become peacemakers, there's really not a lot of motivation. Here's what it looks like. Instead of trusting that God will satisfy our needs and desires, those of us, when we are in the midst of conflict, we have moved away from God and toward another source of satisfaction. By the way, I just defined for you the word idolatry. And one that you're probably more familiar with, adultery. You see, spiritual adultery is idolatry, and by definition, it is leaving your covenantal partner, in this case God, to pursue the satisfaction that another you think will bring you, in this case, the world. And instead of serving God, this adulterous, conflict-laden, desire-pursuing person has allied with God's enemy, the world, and become his adversary. This is frightening. If you, I'm not sure if there's a more frightening landscape for a Christian than the heart in conflict because the heart in conflict says, I love me more than I love you. I'm going to pursue my desires at your expense. And God, I'm going to sit on your throne and I'm going to be friends with your enemy and I'm going to battle you. Why? Because I want what I want. That's what conflict is, according to James. But God opposes us in conflict. And that word opposes in the Greek is a military word, which means he spreads out his forces to overcome us. But he does so to bring us to the point where we will humble ourselves. And when we hold up that white flag of surrender, all of us know what I'm talking about. Every one of us have been in conflict. We've battled. We've argued. 
We've done what we needed to do to try to trump the other person to get what we want. All of us have done it. But when we hold up that white flag of surrender, James says, verse 6, that wave after wave of grace will fall on us. But James, listen, this is, this is so good. I mean, just think for a second. Let's say that James writes and says that when I'm in conflict, it's because I want what I want and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get it. And I'm willing to even battle God and I'm willing to align in adultery with his enemy, the world, and run after what the world wants to give me, what the world whispers to promise to me, all because I want what I want. What if James ended right there with God's opposition as he arrays himself against us? End of book. Wouldn't that be terrifying? But James doesn't end there. He doesn't leave us in this crushing revelation. Friends, listen, let me put it in a way you'll understand. He doesn't leave you on the operating table. He presents to us ten commands that will help us work through conflict and make peace. Friends, if you want to be a peacemaker, this is the, in my opinion, greatest passage of Scripture. It contains everything we need to know. To learn how to make peace. And last three weeks ago, the last time we looked at this, we looked at the first two steps. Number one was we need to submit ourselves to God. Again, another military term meaning to fall back in rank. When we're in conflict, we've stepped out of rank. We've wanted to become the captain when we're just a soldier. God says, submit, get back in a rank. And realize that the root of conflict is that we are rebelling against God and trying to seize the throne. To be honest with you, a lot of us, myself included, have a spiritual rear end that is not suited well, but often sits on the throne that God occupies. Friends, that's the frightening truth. We like the throne. We like when everybody else around us has to do our bidding. And we're very good at maneuvering up the steps of that throne, very good at using anger and manipulation and tears and emotions and bringing up the big bombs of you've always done this or you never do this to be able to get our way. We're great at this. We excel. But James says, submit, get back into rank, get off the throne, get at the foot and do the second step, and that means to resist the devil. The word resist means to stand with God and turn the fight toward the true enemy. Friends, listen, if you don't remember this, this was almost a key point from the last time we preached on this. The devil's name, literally, the devil's name connotes one who separates. That's what the word devil means. It means one who seeks to separate you. If you're in conflict with your spouse, you're separated relationally. If you're in conflict with somebody in this church, you're separated in your friendship. If you're in conflict with God, you're separated in fellowship. This is what the devil wants. Division, separations in church or in relationships, they are the fruit of the devil's influence and foolish, warring people. This is precisely why James gives us step number three. And here it is. This is all new. Here we go. Number three, pray. Number three, pray. Look what he says, verse eight of chapter four. He says, come near to God 
and he will come near to you. And I'm telling you, we're looking at three steps all lodged in verse eight. And there is so much in here. I should have taken two weeks, but my wife would have left to go to another church. So I have to do this in one week. So here it is. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Step number three is pray. Friends, we are a people whose hearts drift. In the midst of conflict, the devil is giving us his own wisdom. We looked at it, chapter 3, verse 15, that always seeks, listen, the devil's wisdom always tries to lead us away from trusting God. Always. Starting in the garden, all the way to Revelation, it's trying to lead us away from God. But if we're to become peacemakers, those who know how to make peace, then we've got to learn to come near to God. The devil wants us to drift away, but a peacemaker comes near to God through prayer. If we are to work through conflict toward peace, we must come near to God for his help. Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. This command, by the way, this command would have sent a flutter, think about this, a flutter of nervous excitement. Through the Jews, you do remember that James is writing to the Jewish people who are now in Christ and they've been scattered through persecution all over Jerusalem, Judea and the outermost parts of the earth. They're all over the known world and they're in these churches and James writes this letter and the people aren't reading the letter like we do. They're hearing it. The leader, the elder of the church is reading the letter to them. So they're hearing this. And they hear James say in his letter, come near to God and he will come near to you. But James, only the priests could come near to God. Ezekiel 44 says, but the priests are to come near to minister before me. They are to stand before me to offer sacrifices of fat and blood, declares the sovereign Lord. They alone are to enter my sanctuary. They alone are to come near my table to minister before me and perform my service. So when a Jewish person in Christ hears this, there's the old familiar excitation, exhilaration, nervousness of coming near to God. But now all Christians, every person in Christ, has the means to come right to the foot of the throne of God through prayer, our way into his presence is by the blood of Jesus. Amen. Here's what it says. Ephesians two, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So James leads us as we're learning to become peacemaker. He leads us away from what the devil was trying to do to separate us away from God. Get us to step out of rank. Get us to come up the throne and sit on the on the throne and, and be the master of our universe to step back down, worship at the throne and come back near to God. Now we come in worship rather than demand. Now we come to pray rather than to battle. Now we ask for help for our idolatrous hearts rather than for God to expose the other person in which we're in conflict with. 
Friends, when we come near to God, he moves, the Bible says, without hesitation near to us. Because God longs for intimacy. He longs for our trust. He longs to be close with his people. Now, listen, I got a little detour right here. Because I know, because I get asked this all the time in counseling. This is common material that I work people through in counseling. And I almost always get asked, Tim, tell us how to do it. Thanks for dissecting our hearts. Thanks for laying it out on the operating table. But just tell us, how do we be peacemakers? Friends, if you're perceptive, you're beginning to see that peacemaking is learned not through techniques, but through pure hearts. These 10 steps are going to leave those of you who demand techniques, who need step-by-step direction, they're going to leave you wanting more because peacemaker, friends, listen, peacemaker has always been about hearts that stop warring for their desires rather than techniques to repair broken bridges. Coming near to God for James is the realignment of the heart's desires. In fact, the phrase come near, if it's in verse 8, means to join one thing with another. That's what James says. He says, join your heart to God's in prayer and he will join his heart with yours. It is the beginning of heart change that will create people of God who make peace. Friends, listen, when we are in conflict, before we will ever be able to make peace, we must come to God in prayer so that our hearts will be joined to his. And I'm not talking, and James doesn't mean the quick prayer that asks for help before you go talk to the person you've been battling. Rather, he means the heart changing, will adjusting, sit at the feet of God, worshipful prayer that delights in being near God. That's the heart that's changed. In fact, one of the major roadblocks to becoming peacemakers, write this down if you can, or pound it into your mind and don't forget it, is that Christians try to resolve conflict without changing their hearts. This is a futile cause. God's way is that we come near to Him and He will come near to you and change you from the inside out. When our pride in the midst of conflict breaks and we lay down our fists and we come to him in prayer, he instantly moves near to us, joined again in fellowship. This is what Psalm 145 speaks of. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Friends, did you see the beautiful contrast that James has given He gives it this contrast, resist the devil and he's going to flee. Get that picture in your mind. Resist the devil, align with God, stand fast with him, and the devil is going to flee. You're going to see the backside of the devil, but you come near to God and you're going to see his face as he comes near to you. This is the beautiful contrast of becoming a, a peacemaker. There's a next step, though. There's ten altogether. The fourth step, the fourth command, the fourth Greek imperative is confess. 
Look what he says. He says in verse 8, continuing on, wash your hands, you sinners. See, when we come near to God in prayer, he begins to help us. Listen, listen. He begins to help us come clean in his presence. The word wash comes from katharizo, which gives us our word catharsis. Catharsis means to purge or cleanse. That's what this Greek word means, wash. To wash our hands is to purge ourselves of sin, sinful behavior, and come clean with God through confession. See, James is instructing us to come near to God, and as he comes near to you, get the imagery, Confess your sin in the conflict. This is what he says. It's a crucial, indispensable step of peacemaking. In fact, the origin of this idea was in the Jewish ceremonial instruction for priests before they came before the Lord to offer sacrifices in the tabernacle or temple. Get this verse. You ready? Exodus 30, make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons, the priests, are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. And God commanded the Israelites to wash as well. He says in Isaiah, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight and stop doing wrong. Friends, I want you to hold on to this imagery for a minute. This imagery of this bronze basin that God commanded that they create to help them in their worship. I want you to hold on to this because, listen, the bronze basin filled with water. That was the stopping point for the priests as they washed their hands and their feet from it. The bronze basin, friends, was what theologians call a type of Christ. In other words, it was a symbol that pointed the people of Israel forward to the day when the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, would come and he would be that bronze basin who washes us clean. Now listen, hold on to this. Did you know that the bronze basin was setting on a base. Did you know that the base of that basin was made out of the mirrors of the of the Israelite women? You see, they did this purposefully because symbolically, the basin points to Jesus who washes us. The base of mirrors points to the Word of God, which acts as a word, a mirror, revealing to us what needs to be cleaned. The water, the labor, the living water, Jesus Christ, who makes us clean, reveals, friends, to us what we need to confess before him. In the New Testament, all believers are part of the priesthood. All can come near through through uh, Jesus Christ, who has washed us clean with pure water. This is what Hebrews says. Therefore, brothers, since you have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. But friends, listen, I'm going to bring the point home. Remember, we're talking about confess. 
We must learn the discipline of biblical confession so that our hearts are kept pure. This is what 1 John says. If we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Here's what it means. As you and I come near to God, join to him in intimate fellowship. Here's the steps. He gives us redemptive eyes to see what it is that we must confess. Why is this important? Because it's often the missing piece of resolving conflict. Friends, listen, maybe this is you or you know somebody that gets in a battle with somebody. They make up over it and then they get back in the battle again over and over and over. It's a pattern. The missing piece is that they return to it again because they never saw the root. And they never saw the root and able to confess it to the Lord. And able to confess it to the Lord and be purified from this unrighteousness. We might hold up the white flag. We may resist the devil. We might even pray. But until we see the idolatrous desires of our hearts and begin to confess them, friends, listen, we're going to continue to do battle. When I have a conflict and I come to God, my tendency and my self-righteousness is to confess the other's sins. Lord, help them see how hurtful they've been to me. Lord, show them their pride. They're not going to get any help until they see this. Friends, the bronze labor The basin of Christ with the polished mirrors of his word reveal what is in my own heart rather than the other person's. It shines a divine light to the darkness in my own heart. You know, when I was in college, before I married Denise, we, uh, two of my friends and I, we moved off campus and we moved into what are called Woodhaven apartments. Unfortunately, I believe they still exist today. They were the lowest of the low when it came to tenement housing. But we were poor college kids. And I remember one time, my, my roommate, Mike Redmond, my best friend, who's in my wedding, he came to me at 2 o'clock in the morning, woke me up. He says, Tim, you got to come here and see this. The whole house is dark, the whole apartment. And he walked me, I'll never forget this, he walked me up the hallway to the kitchen. I said, Mike, what are we doing? He goes, shh, watch. And we get to the kitchen, and he turned the light on. And literally all over the floor of the kitchen were cockroaches. We nicknamed it Roach Haven Apartments. But this is what I will never forget. Now listen, it's the point of that story. It wasn't the Roach... Hey, we're bachelors, man. You just cook them up and eat them. But here... Now, I was just... Just a joke. Never did that. But here's the point of the story. When that light turned on, this is what I will never forget. Every one of those roaches frenetically scatter to get away. Friends, listen. When I come near to God and pray, and He comes near to me with His powerful Word, and He starts putting my heart on the x-ray table, and He begins putting the pictures of that heart up on the wall, I want to run away. I want to scurry. But confession stays the course and it admits what God has said. You see, that's what's different from biblical confession to what a lot of us do. And a lot of us just say, you know what, Lord, what is it that I need to confess? And whatever comes to mind, 
we confess that biblical confession is different. It means to acknowledge or agree fully. It literally means to say the same thing. When you see in the scriptures the word confession, it literally means to say the same thing. The same thing as what? What God is saying to you through his word. When we confess our sins, we are agreeing with what God has spoken into our hearts by the power of his eternal mirror, the word of God. The mirror reflects both a holy, spotless nature and purity of God, while at the same time, it illuminates and reflects the defiled, sinful motives and the desires of my heart in the midst of conflict. Friends, this is why we must come near to God, because when we come near to God, he puts the redemptive glasses on your eyes through his word and he speaks into our hearts what we need to confess. And then our job as Christians is to confess. It's to agree with God. The command to wash your hands is therefore a command to submit to God's divine purification as he shows us what it is that we need to confess. Friends, this is why James tacks on such an incendiary term like you sinners. Look at it, verse 8. Wash your hands, you sinners. Why does he say that? Because he wants to rivet them to the understanding that, listen, your conflict isn't just because you have a bunch of different opinions. It's not because you were raised differently. It's not because that person's fault or your conflict is because you have powerful desires and lusts that have killed and coveted the other person and left God for an illicit spiritual love affair to be his adversary. That's what James is saying, riveting them with you sinners. I'm not letting you go, James says. You're not getting out of my class until you understand that you want to know why you fight. You fight because your desires are too powerful. Friends, listen, nothing short of the spiritual soap of confession can begin to clean your heart. He doesn't leave us there either. One more that we're going to look at today, the word or the rest of verse eight. And purify your hearts, you double minded. This is the step of commit. We've seen pray, we've seen confess, and now we see commit. A young man walked into a photography studio with a framed picture of his girlfriend. They're planning to get married. He wanted that picture duplicated, which involved removing it from the frame. And in doing this, the studio owner noticed the inscription written on the back of the photo. Here's what it said. My dearest Tom, I love you with all my heart. I love you more and more each day. I will love you forever and ever. I am yours for all eternity. And it was signed, Diane. But friends, listen. It contained a PS. And it said, if we ever break up, I want this picture back. <laughs> James says, and purify your heart, you double-minded. You see, the priests and the people would purify themselves by preparing for their participation, even in the sacred uh, festivals. For example, this is from John chapter 11, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, about seven to nine days before it began, many, the, the men and the young men, went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They would offer up prayers. What would they do to be cleansed? They would offer up prayers. They would abstain from certain kinds of food. 
They would clean their clothes from defilement. They would make sure not to touch anything unclean. They would have a special bath or even sometimes they'd shave their heads. But listen, what the Jews did well was religious outward cleansings. What they missed was that God was after a clean heart. The key in understanding what James says, purify your heart, you double-minded, it's to understand. What's he mean by the phrase double-minded? This literally means two-souled, S-O-U-L-E-D. It means they have two souls. Or more commonly, if you've read the Old Testament a lot, it means they have a divided heart. You see, the double-minded friends are those, and many of us are this, who on one hand want to have a Christian walk with God, listen, while on the other hand, love the ways of the world that run after it. Friends, this is the idolatry of God's people that James had in mind. Psalm 24 puts it this way. Listen to this. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Here's a connection. James has just brought it out. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to an idol. To lift up your soul to an idol is to be two-souled or of a divided heart. And James has explained, now you got to come back with me if you didn't like your little history lesson, come back in with me. James has explained how double-mindedness has produced conflict among the believers. Conflict comes from having an idolatrous desire that is so great that we're willing to battle for it with each other and with God. James tells us, friends, wash your hands, confess, and purify your hearts, commit. Confess your sins and commit to single-minded faithfulness to God. You see what James is really targeting here is that when we run after our desires and we leave our one desire to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we do that, we're trying to live with one foot in God and one foot in the world. And friends, that's double-mindedness. It's one thing to confess our behavior, but it's another thing to turn away from the idolatrous roots of the behavior. Let's look at this just a little more deeply. I'm almost done. Double-minded people. You want to know what it looks like? Here it is. Listen. Double-minded people center on this world rather than on eternity. They vacillate between serving God and demanding that God serves us. They swing from delighting in God to delighting in the world. They go back and forth between submitting to God at the foot of His throne and climbing up on top of the throne and demanding to rule. This is double-mindedness. James calls for us to prepare ourselves by cleaning our hearts, purify your hearts from those things that cause us to waver in our commitment to God. Friends, listen, no hands. But how many of you right now are struggling with something that just keeps pulling your focus, your love, your faithfulness away from God and back onto yourself? How many of you are struggling? You don't need to raise your hand, but think about that. This is what James is saying because this causes conflict. External conflict reveals an already existing internal conflict in your own heart. Friends, the fact is that when we battle with each other, we are of two minds. And we must purify 
that divided heart. Romans 8, 5 puts it this way. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what they, their, that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. And that for that reason, Paul writes in Colossians, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So friends, let me close this sermon with these questions. Would you listen? Would you honestly interact? Are you living with two pursuits in your heart? Would you honestly ask that? Are you pursuing God and still trying to pursue pleasure? Have you picked up that cross only to drag it into your love affair with the world? We do this all the time. Friends, has God shown you a heart that rages with its own desires that keeps sweeping you into conflict? If I were sitting where you are and you were up here preaching, I'd be asking you, so how do we purify our hearts? Because I don't want that life. And you know what, friends? James is going to answer that very question. And we're going to look at it, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, even though our flesh wants to cling to techniques, wants to cling to things that we can control. Lord, you give us a far deeper and more redemptive plan to becoming a peacemaker. Lord, continue to teach us how to submit to you, how to fall back in rank. Lord, show us how to resist the devil, how to stand fast with you, Lord, and to bring your word to bear on him. Father, I pray that you would teach us how to pray, how to sit at the foot of your throne comfortably, and how to wash our hands how to confess, how to come to the bronze basin of Christ and let the mirror of your word reveal what we need to confess and to agree with you, to acknowledge it, to say the same as you are saying in our hearts. Lord, teach us how to commit to living single-mindedly. Teach us, Lord, how to have faith that produces action, not a faith that's divorced from action. Lord, teach us how to call ourselves and claim to be Christians, yet live that life in peace with those around us. Teach us how to purify our hearts, Father. I pray as we continue in this series that you will shed wisdom and light on what we need to hear and let us become a people that know how to make peace. We pray for that faith, trusting that you can make it so in Jesus' name. Amen.